reminds you of God, who God is, what God can do. He said, I want you to think about the treasures of the snow. And there are many things about the snow you could look at. And of course, they tell me that no single snowflake is just alike. But you look at snow and the treasures of it. You see the footprints or the fingerprints of the Lord. And anything you look at, you can find the Lord in it and see his glory and his power and whatever. So as we gather here this morning, I want you to just put your mind on the Lord. We're going to talk about thinking about God in just a little while. But think about the Lord. Look to the Lord. Forget everything else. We've gathered here in the Father's house to worship the Lord today. Amen. And we want to worship the Lord. That's our theme. We've been talking about offering sacrifices to the Lord. And this morning we're going to talk about offering the sacrifice of worship. And my prayer is today that God will let somebody worship, really worship the Lord. And I pray today that somebody here in this room, that you'll understand today before you leave what worship is all about. Real worship, real worship. So let's just put our mind on the Lord. Let's think about the Lord and let's just lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We're having some problems with our projector this morning. I don't know what happened to it. Pam, it always tears up when Pam's on it up there. So we don't know if it's her or what, but I want you to sing and let's just worship the Lord and just let the name of Jesus Christ be glorified. But let's pray before we do so. And I want our men that will come and let's just gather around the altar and let's take this service of the Lord now. And let's ask the Lord to touch and to move and just to open our hearts. Good to see all of you here. A good number for the weather and different things, but we're glad you're here. Let's just pray. Father, this morning in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, we have gathered this morning to come to your house that you might speak to us. And Lord, not only have we come to get something from you, but Lord, we have gathered today to give something to you. And that is, Lord, we want to offer to you the sacrifice of praise. We want to offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we want to offer to you the sacrifice of worship. So today I pray that you'd accept our offerings today from the depths of our heart. May the truth of God become realities in our life today as a result of us being in this service. And we realize, Lord, that the Spirit of God must birth these things in all of our hearts. So we submit this service into your hands and to your working. So move and meet every need, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Little chorus, Jesus, Lord, to me. Let's try it together, all everyone. Jesus, Jesus, Lord, to me, Master, Savior, Prince of Peace, Today. 
Let's turn around and fellowship one with another. Be sure to welcome our visitors.
Thank you. You may be seated. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering. And as they do so, let me say it's a joy to have those that are visiting with us today. And we appreciate you honoring us by being in the services. And we'd like for you, if you would please, take just a moment and fill out a visitor's card. If you were given a little welcome brochure as you came in this morning, there's a card in that. If you were given a bulletin, there's a card that you can use from inside the bulletin. And if not, there are some visitor's cards in the back of the pews. But uh, we want you to get to know us a little bit better. We'd like to send you some information about the church, and we want to get to know you as well. So if you would fill out a visitor's card for us and drop an offering plate in just a moment, we'd appreciate it so much. Let me read to you a card said, Thank you for the kind uh, visits and the cards and the prayers during the death of our daughter-in-law, Judy Peck. This is from Leonard and Geneva Graham. So we appreciate this card and their thoughtfulness today. Let's pray and you give and be faithful in your giving. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to give to you. And may we obey you today in our giving. And may you be honored through our giving. In Jesus' name, amen.
this week, I told the Sunday school class this, and it was chilly in the house, and I went to turn up the heat, and it reminded me of growing up in the mountains of North Carolina, and this snow reminded me of that this morning, and we grew up, I grew up real poor, and we always lived in little bitty houses, and and the snow would blow in around the windows a lot of times, and and we had coal or wood heat. We didn't have good heating in the house, so there was only one spot warm in the house, and that was the wood stove or the coal stove, and you had to warm a side at a time, you know. But God was so real to our family. We thought we was rich. We didn't know we was poor. We didn't know. And in one of those little houses one day, the Lord touched my heart. And for three months at five years old, I dreamed of hell. Every night I thought Jesus was going to come and I'd be left behind. And one night my mom had tried so hard to tell me how to be saved. But that particular night she said, honey, I've done all I can do. It's up to you now. It's up to you and the Lord. I went and knelt down beside my bed, which was six paint cans and a box springs and mattress. <laughs> and I knelt down beside that bed and I asked Jesus to come into my heart and to save me. And he did that. Then at 15 years old, at a Bill Baird crusade in our high school, I made him Lord. I said, God, I'm tired of just living this mediocre life and I didn't use those words because I didn't know those words but I'm tired of the normal I want you to be Lord of my life and I meant it with all my heart and God took me at my word and he became Lord in my life now there's been times in my life when I've picked up that Lordship again and tried to go with the ball you know run with the ball and the Lord would say, wait a minute. He'd prick my heart and he'd grab me and he'd pull me back. <laughs> and he'd say, wait a minute. You told me that you wanted me to be Lord. Now why are you trying to run the show? And he'd pull me back to earth again. And make me see that he's in charge. I know how much I want you to be in charge, Lord. Now more than ever, after all these years, after all these years of you proving yourself to me, of all the answered prayer, of all the peace and the storm, and for all the storms to come, I need you to be Lord of all more now than ever. When I was just a child, I heard a beautiful story of how you loved me so you died on Calvary.
gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord. What so vast the cross and I could not afford. From where I was to his demand, see so far, I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are, but he came to me. He came 
his name. When I couldn't come where he was, <laughs> he came to me. Hallelujah. He came to me. Stan Rick, let's just sing. Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. All of our sins and griefs to bear. I thought, I was watching TV late last night. I was, was watching the Gaither video that was done in Belfast, Ireland. Any of you seen that? It's one of the new ones. And I was watching that and I had an interest because I'd be preaching in Belfast in January. And so I was kind of drawn to it and was watching it. And they told the story. In fact, one of the churches that I'll be in will be at Banbridge Baptist Church in Banbridge, Northern, Northern Ireland. And that's where Joseph Scrivens lived, who wrote this song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Let's stand and let's just sing this and, and let's just sing it to the Lord. What a friend we have in Jesus, all of our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then we'll look into his work. But let's sing this to the Lord. been doing all morning bringing their needs and bringing their burdens and I would say to you oh what needless grief and pain you bear just because you do not take those needs to the Lord amen, amen. take remain standing and pick up your Bible and turn to first Peter 2 also the book of first Chronicles 16 the book of first Peter chapter 2 and first Chronicles 16 Andy and Diane Ramsey are with us this morning and when is it that you're leaving Tuesday? Thursday morning. Andy and Diane are heading back to Costa Rica, and they're heading back Thursday morning. Will you be with us in the services tonight as well? Good. And we'll recognize them tonight so you want to remember Andy and Diane as they'll be going back. And we appreciate them and appreciate all of our missionaries on the field. And, and uh, what a just a privilege to have those that are with us. And also... Uh, the fellas justified will be singing at Lanham's Bible Bookstore this Saturday 
from 11 o'clock till 1 o'clock. That's in Brainerd Village. And so you can drop by there and uh, if you just give them, uh, go in the bookstore, get whatever you want, they'll charge it to Justified. So, but they'll be singing from 11 to 1 o'clock. So our fellows will be over there Saturday. So you want to go by for that. So uh, we appreciate how the Lord is using them. For the past several weeks, we've been thinking about offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, this has been our text verse. This has been our foundation. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Peter said, You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. What? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he calls us a holy priesthood. Verse 9, he calls us a royal priesthood. But he tells us in verse 5 that is a holy and a royal priesthood that one of our responsibilities is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now mark in your place, turn to the book of First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles 16 and I would encourage you this afternoon when you go home and you sit down for a few moments to read this chapter. It's a great chapter. I'll say a little bit more about it in just a moment. But I want you to look at verse 29. 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 29. David in this psalm says in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now let's read verse 29 together. First Chronicles 16, verse 29. Let's all read it together. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray. And this morning we're going to think about the matter of offering the sacrifice of worship. Offering the sacrifice of worship. Let's pray. Our Father, as we gather here this morning, it's already been a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. And Father, as the choir sung a moment ago, Jesus Christ is all that we need. And Father, many have already found Jesus Christ to be sufficient to meet their needs. And they've already found in this service that Christ is able to help them and to help them to bear their burdens. And we thank you so much for being Lord of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for those that have knelt this morning to renew that lordship and to just come to Jesus and say, be Lord of my life. But fathers, we come to you this morning. We ask you now that you'll take the message and the word of God and open it to our understanding. For the book of God has been given to us by the Spirit of God. And it is only by the Spirit of God that we'll understand the Word of God. So we ask you now to help us this morning and open our hearts as well as our minds. And may we comprehend the truth of God. Speak to us now and we'll glorify your name and give you all the praise and all the glory. For it is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. As I said over the past few weeks, we have turned our attention to Peter's description of every believer being a holy priesthood and being a royal priesthood. And we have looked at different facts that he's had to say about what he had to say about the matter of being a priest. We thought about how as a holy priesthood, 
It talks about our purpose. And as a royal priesthood, our privilege. As a holy priesthood, we've been set apart unto God. And we've been given this divine purpose. And the purpose defined in verse 5 is to offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And whenever you find the word priest, as we have saw in our past studies, it always has the ideal of offering sacrifices unto the Lord. That was the primary responsibility of a priest, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But it's a royal priesthood, royal, speaking of that which is kingly, that which is a king. And as Revelation said, he hath made us kings and priests. We have our privilege. As a holy priest, we have a reason to come. But as a royal priest, we have a right to come to God. But our focus has been upon these spiritual sacrifices, bringing our spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. What are these sacrifices? Well, there are many, as you look in the Bible, that we are to offer as a child of God but there are three in, in particular that has been the focus of our attention. We began by looking at offering the sacrifice of praise. And we saw from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. And we saw about this sacrifice that it was to be a personal offering, that every believer is to offer the sacrifice of praise. We saw that it is a proper offering, nothing out of order to praise the Lord. Praise is comely and praise is pleasant, as the Bible said. It's always in order. Praise is a proper offering to give to God. And then we saw that it was to be a perpetual offering. That is, we're to continually be offering the sacrifice of praise unto God. Then we looked at the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we saw in Psalm 116 where it talks about offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord. And we thought about this offering of thanksgiving. How that when we approach the presence of God, we're to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And when we attend the house of God, we're to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And when we acknowledge the work of God, we are to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So we've looked at the sacrifice of praise. We've looked at the sacrifice of thanksgiving. But this morning I want us to look at the sacrifice of worship. One of the spiritual sacrifices that we as a holy royal priesthood is to offer to God, is to offer to the Lord, is this worship or this sacrifice of worship. Now 1 Chronicles chapter 16, as I said, is a very interesting chapter. David and the people are celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, had been stolen. It was many, many years before it was brought back to its rightful place. And in 1 Chronicles 16, David and the people are celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll find that its return was surrounded with great celebration. And not only was it surrounded with great celebration, but it was surrounded with the offering of sacrifices. For example, chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible said, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. The burnt sacrifices refers to the burnt offerings. Those were compulsory offerings. These were offerings that were required of God by the people. They had to bring at a certain time every year burnt offerings. But then they also offered peace offerings. This was a voluntary offering. This was something the people chose to bring on their own. And as we saw last Sunday morning, I reminded you that many times in the Bible, the peace offering is called a thanksgiving offering. 
So they brought the offerings that were required by God, the burnt offerings, and they brought offerings that were uh, the, the decision of the people, chosen by the people to do so. They were voluntary offerings. But as you find as they celebrated the return of the ark and the offering of sacrifices, you find that David presented a song. And it was a psalm or a song that was used in the celebration of the ark. You notice in verse 7, Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord in the hand of Asaph and his... David makes the statement in verse 29. He said, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. David says to the people on that day, again, a day they were celebrating the return of the ark of God or the ark of the covenant. David said, we have offered burnt offerings and we have offered peace offerings unto the Lord, but I also want you to offer an offering of worship unto the Lord. He said, of all the material offerings we are offering, there is a spiritual offering that we want to give to God in worship for what God has done, and that is an offering of worship. So David talks about a sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice that we want to think about this morning, an offering of worship to God. When I think about worship, I think of many names. One of the names I think of was the great missionary Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, missionary to China for a number of years. Hudson Taylor was a most remarkable individual. And all that I've ever read about Hudson Taylor and the more that I learn about Hudson Taylor, the more amazed that I am on, in, uh, uh, concerning Hudson Taylor. In fact, one of the things I learned about him this week that fascinated me is that as missionaries would come, candidates would come to prepare for the mission field, his, his missionary training manual, you know what it was? You know what the missionary training manual of Hudson Taylor was? It was a copy of the book of the Song of Solomon. For Hudson Taylor realized that if a missionary was going to be effective on the field, they had to love the Lord more than anything else in this world. And he knew that developing their love for Christ would be the key to their effectiveness on the field. So his training manual was the book of Song of Solomon. But I read one time about Hudson Taylor. During the latter part of his life, his son and daughter-in-law traveled constantly with him. And he was getting up in years and they were going here and going there, going in this village and going to that village. And they would travel long hours during the daytime. And of course, in those days, traveling was in the most difficult circumstances. They didn't have modern means of traveling as we do in these days. But they would begin early in the morning and they would travel all day. And many times it would be late at night before they would lay down. But his son told about in his biography, or autobiography, in his biography, he told about how no matter how long they traveled during the day, how far they traveled and how many hours they spent and how late it was before they went to bed, he said without fail every morning, just before dawn, he would hear the scratching of a match and the lighting of a candle and he would hear his father worship God. And he said, that was the key to my father's life. And it was said that before the sun ever rose on China, Hudson Taylor could be found on his face worshiping God. And when I think about the matter of worship this morning, I want to make a statement. And, I think, and then I'll try to explain that statement through the course of the message today. 
But when I think about the matter of worship, it is my personal opinion that many believers have never really worshipped God. And it is my personal opinion that the majority of believers rarely ever worship the Lord, really worship God. I'll say that again. It is my personal opinion, again, my opinion, but it's my opinion that many believers have never really worshipped God. And it is my opinion that the majority of believers rarely ever worship the Lord. I think about worship, I think about something that A.W. Tozer had to say, and this is interesting. Tozer said, worship is the missing jewel in the modern church. He said, we're organized, we work, we have our agendas, we have almost everything, but there is one thing that the churches, even gospel churches, do not have, and that is the ability to worship. He went on to say we're not cultivating the art of worship. It is the one shining gem that is lost to the modern church, and I believe that we ought to search for it, search for this until we find it. And I most wholeheartedly agree with what Tozer had to say. I believe that worship is the missing jewel in our churches today. I have the opportunity of being in a lot of different kinds of churches, big ones and little ones, dead ones and live ones, and I've been in all kinds of them, informal, formal, all, whatever. And it is my growing conviction that the one thing that is really missing is the Jew of worship. And it's also my conviction that powerlessness in many of a life and powerlessness in many of a church is due to this missing jewel of worship. The powerlessness in our life and the powerlessness in many of our churches is due to the fact that this one shining gem is lost. Oswald Chambers said, Worshiping God is the great essential of fitness. He said, If you have not been worshiping, and listen carefully what he said, when you get into work, you will not only be useless yourself, but a tremendous hindrance to those you are associated with. Oswald Chambers was saying that if you try to do the work of God without worship, it'll be useless work. And he was saying not only will your work be useless, but you'll also be a hindrance to those that you are working with if you do not worship. Now, work is very important in our life, but worship must always precede work. And work without worship is work that will be worthless. A number of years ago, a preacher friend of mine gave me a book and said, Brother Ken, I want you to read this book. And I read it as a book entitled, How to Worship Jesus Christ by Joseph Carroll. And I think of something that he said, and I say it, and then I'll move into the message today. Joseph Carroll said that worship is that one essential activity that must take precedence over every other duty of life. I say that to say this and then the message. I believe of all the offerings that we've looked at, worship is the most important of them all. I believe if you learn to worship God, then you'll have no difficulty offering a sacrifice of praise. And if you worship God, you'll have no difficulty offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see, praise flows out of worship. And thanksgiving flows out of worship. Worship is not praise. And worship is not thanksgiving. But praise flows out of worship. And thanksgiving flows out of worship. So of all the offerings that we've looked at, 
I think this is the most important one. And so I want your attention. I want you to listen. I want you to follow me. I want you to think with me this morning because I believe this. I believe that a life could be changed today if you get a hold of what I'm about to say. And I believe this church could be totally transformed if we could get a hold of what I'm about to say today about the matter of worship. It would totally transform me and transform you and this entire congregation of believers if we get a grasp of what real worship is all about. So are you with me this morning? Do you have your Bibles? Raise your Bibles up. Hold your Bibles up. Are you with me now? Say amen. amen. All right, let's begin. First thing I want to draw to your attention is this. When I think about the matter of worship, I think about what worship involves. What is it that is involved in the matter of worship? Now, I said a moment ago, it is my opinion that many believers have never really worshipped. And it's my opinion that the majority of believers rarely ever worship. And I say that because of what worship involves. There's something involved in the matter of worship that is, that, is, that is critical to this matter of worship. And, and because of what is involved, many have never really worshipped God. Now, we often call our worship, we often call our church services worship services. But many times our, worship, our services are anything but worship services. So what is this matter of worship? What is involved in the matter of worship? Jot down these two things. One. When I think about what worship involves, I think, first of all, of the revelation of God. The revelation of God. I read a book not too long ago entitled A Heart for God by Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor from Glasgow, Scotland. And in the book A Heart for God, he had a chapter entitled Worship. And I found it interesting that in that chapter, as he described the matter of worship, he described the atmosphere of worship as something that was theological. He said that theology was, or the atmosphere of worship was a theological matter. And I agree with him. The more that I learn about worship, the more I agree that worship is a theological matter. And the more that I understand what the Bible has to say about worship, the more I appreciate the statement by Mr. Ferguson that the atmosphere of worship is theological. You say, what do you mean? Well, you take theology. When we talk about theology, we're simply talking about the study of God. Theo, which is God. Ology, which talks about a study. The study of God. When someone talks about theology, they're talking about studying God. They're talking about studying God as He hath made Himself known. It is coming to an understanding of God's revelation of Himself. Now, there's something I hear all the time. I hear it on TV. Hear it on the channels and TV and all these different kind of places things and I hear people making this statement but you hear people all the time this really bothers me they'll make the statement doctrine really doesn't matter or they say doctrine's not what is important to me but I want you to listen to me this morning doctrine is very 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 important and doctrine and theology is very very critical in fact doctrine is the basis of worship and theology is the foundation to worshiping God. No doctrine, there'll be no worship. No theology, there'll be no worship of God. For you see, worship starts with the fact that God has 
made himself known or that God has revealed himself. That's theology. That's truth. That's doctrine and whatever. God is God and he has made himself known and our understanding of God, our study of God, our understanding of God is what theology and doctrine is all about. Now that is the foundation of worship. Worship is based on the understanding of certain facets of that revelation of God. Now think with me for just a moment. Say, Brother Ken, what are you talking about? Just follow me for just a moment. Think with me. How do we know that God exists? Now, listen, it's not a matter that I believe God exists. I want you to understand something. Listen to the words that I'm using very, very carefully. I ask you, how do we know that God exists? It's not a matter that I believe God exists. It's a matter that I know God exists. Can I get an amen right there? But how do we know that God exists? How do we know about God? We have sung things about God today. The songs have said this about God. Certain statements about God has been made. How do we know this about God? How do we know there is a God? And how, we know, how do we know that God exists? And how do we know what we know about that God? I'll tell you how we know there's a God. Because God has made himself known. We know there's a God because God has manifested himself or God has revealed himself. What we know about God is that which God has revealed to us. Everything that I know about God, everything you know about God, is that which God let us know about himself. There's not one thing about God that we would know about God if God had not made it known. What we know about God is that God is what God has revealed unto us. God has made himself known. He has revealed himself. For example, Genesis 1.1. And you know the verse, very familiar verse, most of you can quote it, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now in those 10 words there, Genesis 1-1, you have eternity suddenly interjected with a space of time that we call history. For I want you to understand something. In the beginning, not the beginning of God, for God existed before the beginning, the beginning in Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of things as we know it. The beginning in Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of time as we know it. The beginning in Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of history as we know it. It's the beginning of all things, the beginning of creation, not the beginning of God. Are you aware this morning that, that God has never had a beginning? There has never been a moment that God did not exist there has never been an hour that God was not God. God has always existed. God had existed in eternity past. But all of a sudden in Genesis 1-1, God makes his existence known. He steps out of eternity, begins a period of time that we call history, and suddenly in Genesis 1-1, he introduces himself by saying, I am God. Now until that moment... There had been no revelation of God. The only knowledge of God was eternity and those that existed with them in eternity. But God created a world, inhabited that world with human beings, and he made himself known unto them. He began, he, he introduces himself in the beginning, God. There is the first revelation of God that is given to man. But here's the point. God suddenly introduces himself in Genesis 1-1, and then time in history is a process whereby God continually revealed himself. For example, you go to Genesis 1-1, God suddenly introduces himself. 
and you learn something about God. You learn that God created the earth. You learn that God created the universe. You learn that God created all that there is. You learn that God is the creator. You turn your Bible a page in chapter 2, you'll learn something else about God. You look in chapter 3, you'll learn something else about God. You look in chapter 4, you'll learn something else about God. Chapter 5, chapter 6, every page of your Bible, you'll learn something about God. Because when God first introduced himself, he began a process of making himself known. That's what this Bible is all about. This is God making himself known. He reveals himself. Now, I realized this morning that if I tried to, it would take a lifetime, and I don't even believe I could do it in a lifetime, to even begin to focus just for a moment upon all that God has revealed about himself. I've been here 14 years, and I've been trying to, my best to preach the Word of God. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what God says about himself. But let me just give you three words, just to give you an idea. He made himself known, and throughout time he's been making himself known. But let me give you three words. Write these down. These are words you're familiar with, and words if you're not familiar with, at least you have heard them. Write down the word omniscient. The word omniscient. God is omniscient. And when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying that God has infinite awareness, that God has infinite understanding, that God has infinite knowledge. When we say that God is omniscient, we're saying that God knows everything. You rare this morning that you can't tell God anything because he knows everything. Are you aware this morning you can't teach God anything because there's nothing that God does not know? Are you aware this morning that there is nothing that God doesn't know about the past and there is nothing that he doesn't know about the present and there's nothing that he doesn't know about the future? God knows everything. You jump out ahead a hundred years, God already knows what's going to happen. He knows everything that will happen in a hundred years. He knows everything that will happen 500 years. He knows everything that will happen a million years from now. He even knows what's going to happen in Palm Beach, Florida. Can I get an amen right there? God knows everything. He is omniscient. He has infinite awareness and understanding. Write down the second word. That is the word omnipotent. Omnipotent. God, and when you talk about God being an omniscient God, he knows everything. But when you say God is an omnipotent God, you're saying that God has unlimited power and that God has unlimited influence. As an omniscient God, there's nothing that he doesn't know. But as an omnipotent God, there is nothing he cannot do. There is no comparison to his ability. There is no limit to his ability. He can create a world and a universe and not even begin to demonstrate the limits and the reach of his power and his ability. He is an omnipotent God. But not only is he omniscient, not only is he omnipotent, but write down the third word, omnipresent. God is an omnipresent God. And when I say that he's an omnipresent God, I'm saying that he's present in all places and at all times. I heard someone one time describe the omnipresence of God as God in everything. No, God's not in everything. God's not in this pulpit. He's not in these speakers here. But everything is in the presence of God. God is in all places. And God is in all places at all times. In other words, God is omniscient. He knows everything. 
God is omnipotent. There is nothing that he can't do. And God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at every moment. There is no place that you will be outside the presence of God. And that's just three words. That's just three words that that gives us an idea of how God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself as a God of unlimited awareness and of infinite knowledge and of infinite understanding. He's a God that has made himself known as a God that has unlimited power and influence and a God that is everywhere present in all places and at all times, and that just begins to scratch the surface. That just begins to scratch the surface of the kind of God that we have, a God that we know. What we know about God is God's revelation of himself. Are you with me so far? Say amen. You say, what's this got to do with worship? Everything. Follow me. There is, first of all, what is involved in worship is the revelation of God. What? We know about God, what God has let us know about himself. But the second thing involved in worship is this. Not only is there the revelation of God involved in worship, but there is the contemplation of man. There is the revelation of God. There is the contemplation of man. Worship commences with the revelation of God. Worship begins with what God has revealed about himself, but it continues with the contemplation of man. Or to put it another way, worship involves man thinking about God as he has revealed himself in his word. Now, John 4, 24, don't turn there, but jot the reference down. We looked at this verse on Wednesday night, not too many weeks ago, and Jesus made this statement in John 4, talking to the woman at the well, And they got into a discussion of worship. And Jesus said to the woman in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Now that's revelation. That's God making himself known. God is spirit. We learned that God is spirit. How do we know that God is spirit? He revealed himself in his word. He said to us, Jesus revealed him. God is spirit. But he made this statement. God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, and to make a mental note in your mind of that phrase, spirit and truth. You made that note in your mind? Now, put a circle around the word truth for just a moment. He said we worship God, and one of the requirements of worship is to worship God in truth. Now, what is truth? What is truth? To put it in a simple nutshell, truth is truth. Truth is what we know about God. Truth is what God has revealed about himself. Truth is that which is laid down in the word of God. It is what God says. It is what God says about himself. It is what God says about his son. It is what God says about the spirit. It is what God says about his plan, his purposes. Truth is God's revelation of himself. Now Jesus said, if a man worships, he must worship in Truth, in other words, worshiping in truth involves thinking about God, thinking about what is known about God, thinking about who God is, thinking about what God has done, thinking about what God can do, thinking about what God is as revealed by God in His Word. And you know what worship is? I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. Listen to me. 
You know why many people do not worship? It's because worship is being occupied with God. Can I say it again? Worship is being occupied with God. A.B. Gibbs in his book on worship said, and he gave this description of it, and I think this is good. He said, prayer is the occupation of the soul with its needs. Prayer is the occupation of the soul with its needs. Praise is the occupation of the soul with its blessings. Prayer is the occupation of the soul with its needs. Praise is the occupation of the soul with its blessings. But worship is the occupation of the soul with God Himself. He also gave this description. To say, Lord, save my soul is prayer. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul is praise. But thank you, Lord, for what thou art. That is worship. Worship is being occupied with God. It is being locked in on what we know about God. It is the soul being captivated with God. As R.A. Torrey said, worship is an adoring contemplation of the Lord. Or another said, worship is the occupation of the heart, not with its needs or even with its blessings, but with God Himself. Now listen to me. Worship is not praise. Worship is being occupied with God. Praise flows out of that occupation with God. Worship is not thanksgiving. Worship is being occupied with God. And thanksgiving flows out of that worship. Now here's what worship is. Get it this morning. Understand this. Worship is you being taken up with God. There is something about God that has gotten your attention. There is something about God that has captivated your heart. It may be His omniscience. It may be His omnipotence. It may be His omnipresence. It may be His grace. It may be His mercy. It may be His love. But somewhere your mind and heart has been drawn to God and God becomes the center of your life and the center of your thoughts and you're dwelling upon things about God. You wonder why most people don't worship? Because we think about everything but God. And we're occupied with everything and everyone but God. We go through our day-by-day -day schedule. And then God, you once in a while, you'll think about God and think about the church. And thinking about church is not thinking about God. But you'll think about God here and there and yonder. But we got our mind on this and we got our mind on that. And all we, we're occupied with this and that and the other. And we have so little time. To think about God. And the same thing happens when we come to church on Sunday morning. We come to church and our mind is on everything but God. We come to church and the choir's thinking, why did we sing that song again? And you did pull some out of the archives today, but we sing, why did we sing that song? And the congregation's thinking, boy, Brother Ken's going a little long this morning. Mom's thinking about the meal she's going to be preparing in a little while. Dad's thinking about the, what he's got to do at work tomorrow. Young people are thinking about a date or a party or a movie they're going to. The deacons are thinking about how are we going to get rid of the preacher. The preacher's thinking about how, are we going to, how am I going to survive the next deacon's meeting. 
The Sunday school superintendent's thinking, why is the attendance down today? And the treasurer's thinking, oh, I hope we had a good offering today. And we got our mind on this, and we got our mind on everything and everyone but God. And the reason we come to church and we don't worship is we don't think about God. Nobody will ever worship until you get occupied with God. You don't come to church to see what people wears. And you don't come to church to about this. And you come to church to think about God. And that's why we're here. And a man, when he, if he will not think about God and he doesn't put his mind on God, he'll never worship. But worship is when there's something about God that gets your attention. Something about God that captures your heart. Something about God that absolutely takes control of you for a moment. Something about God that fills your mind and dominates your thinking. You become totally occupied with God and something about God. Now that's what worship is. And that's what worship involves. It involves first a revelation of God. Second of all, a contemplation of man. But there's something else. Are you still with me now? Say amen. Not only what does worship involve, but second of all, what does worship inspire? Again, John 4, 24. Jesus said you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in John 4, 24, when he talked about spirit, he was not talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The word that he uses there is a word that speaks of the spirit of man. They that worship God must worship him in their spirit and in truth. Now the word spirit, when he talks about man being body, soul, and spirit, the spirit of man embraces and puts an umbrella over a wide range of things in our life. It throws an umbrella over our emotions. The spirit of man is that part in which we have our emotions. It throws an umbrella over our attitudes, even our understanding, our awareness, and all these things. They all come into that what is known as the spirit of man. When Jesus said you must worship him in spirit and truth, the idea was that you must worship him in an understanding of truth. And an understanding of a certain truth about God leads to this matter of affecting you in one way or the other. That when you worship man, you must worship him with your spirit. That there's a part of you, the emotional part of you, gets connected to what you are doing. It begins with God, how he's made himself known. And it begins by thinking about God, thinking about who God is, thinking about what God has done. And the result is something happens in your heart as a result of what you've been thinking about. Worshiping in truth, it inspires certain things. For one thing, worship will produce an overwhelmed heart. When you begin to think about God, now follow me, some of you will understand this and some of you may not understand this. But when you begin to think about God and you get locked in on God and He becomes big to you, it will not be long that your heart becomes overwhelmed with what you're thinking about. For example, you get to thinking about how God created this earth 
And we got all these theories and all these ideals and all these hypotheses that are given out as to how things come. And lo and behold, someone just this week discovered about a new explosion out in space that happened 400 billion years ago. And they, of course, didn't have any real, they couldn't, you know, they didn't exactly, they had all these ideals and theories as to why it happened there. But you get to thinking about this creation and this world and how God, it didn't come about, it didn't evolve, it didn't just uh, emerge over a period of time. There wasn't big, some big bang out there in eternity. I'll tell you how it happened. And it's not due to my having not good senses. I have enough sense to believe what God said. But one day there was absolutely nothing. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Did you get to thinking about it all? It, it's amazing. It's amazing. I was reading the other day an article about the eye. It amazed me as I learned something about the human eye and all the uh, details and all the intricate workings of the human eye. It's, it's amazing. But the more I read these things and the more I understand them, the more I see how great our God is and the ability of God. But you begin to think about God. And you begin to dwell about on God and think about God. And it's not long that your heart becomes overwhelmed. For example, turn to 2 Samuel. Turn back a few pages. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you'll find Nathan, David has been commissioned, Nathan has been commissioned by the Lord to tell David that the throne of his kingdom would be established forever. And when he tells David this, you read how David retired 2 Samuel 7, to a private place and he sat down before the Lord. And he sat down, the ideal is he just sat down like we would sit down in a chair and just close his eyes and begin to think about God. And as he was thinking about God, he began to talk to God. 2 Samuel beginning in verse 18, chapter 7, verse 18. Then went King David in, 2 Samuel 7, Verse 18, then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the matter of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. He goes in and he sits down. And he begins to think about God. And as he thinks about God, he begins to talk to himself. And he begins to talk out loud. He begins to talk to God. And he begins to talk to God. He begins to talk to God about how great God is. And how good God is. And it's not long after thinking about God and talking to God that he's lost in the wonder of God's majesty and greatness. For he says in verse 22, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He gets over, his soul is overwhelmed with God. Or to put it another way, in a way that everybody can understand. David is sitting before God, 
thinking about God, and the more he thinks about God, the bigger God gets in his heart. And the bigger God gets in his heart, his heart is overwhelmed. He's full of God. He's full of thoughts of God. And he begins to give praise to God. Praise will produce an overwhelmed heart. But it doesn't stop there. It not only produces an overwhelmed heart, but it produced an overflowing heart. For as David said in Psalm 45, 1, my heart is indicting a good manner. And the word indicting, the marginal rendering is, my heart boileth over, or my heart babbleth up. You know what happens when you begin to worship God? You begin to think about God. You begin to dwell upon who He is. Maybe God's grace has become real to you. Maybe a song pulls you in that direction. And you begin to think about God's grace. And you begin to think about the measure of His grace. And you begin to think about the depth of His grace. And as you think about God, His grace, and as you think about Him, God begins to get big in your heart. And you find yourself just captivated with God, not with yourself, but with God. And as you're captivated with God, He gets bigger in your heart until you're absolutely overwhelmed with the fact of who God is. And it's not long that that kind of bubbles up and it bubbles over. There's an overflowing in your life. Say, what do you mean? We've looked at it all week long or the past two or three weeks. You get to worship God. Somewhere, you listen to me, you say, oh, but Brother Trivet, I am not an emotional person. You worship, you will be. You say, Brother Ken, I, I'm not that way. I can't lift my hand. You ever get in the presence of God and worship, your heart's going to bubble over somewhere. In other words, somewhere the pressure's going to get out. Say, Amen. You, there's a bawling over. There is some kind of expression of it. As Dr. Vernon Ground said, worship involves four things. There's an awareness of God. There's an awe in His presence. There's an adoration of Him. And there's an affirmation in praise. In other words, when you worship God, it will stir you. There'll be a stirring in your heart. You know what most of us do? We've got everything backwards. We run our Christian life by what? We feel. Now, I want you to understand something. Nothing wrong with emotions in serving God. Nothing wrong with human emotions in worshiping God. Nothing wrong with human emotions in praising God. Nothing wrong with it. But what we do is we start on the emotional end, not the theological end. And what we do is we start over here. There was a song. Boy, I like that song. It made me feel good. Or we pump the PA system up and we get coaches. Ooh, boy, I felt something going up and down my spine. We start over here with the emotional part. No, 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 no. That's not where it starts. It starts over here in the theological part. It starts over here with truth. God is good. Is that right? Amen. God is great. God is glorious. God is majesty. And as you begin to see God, and as God begins to get bigger in your heart, it begins to stir you. 
you and it begins to move you and you begin to, there's an overflow in your heart and there's times you can't help but just lift your hands up and say, great is the Lord and glorious is His majesty. Sometimes you can't help but let something out. Because, why? Because there is a stirring of the spirit of man when we worship God. You say, but that's not me. Again, 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 again. Worship. If you'll ever worship somewhere, it's kind of like the measles, it's going to pop out on you somewhere. You're going to do something. You'll find yourself weeping. You'll find yourself shouting. You'll find yourself praising God. Some way, somehow, worship will overflow in your life. It always causes something in your heart. We come to church and some folks say, well, you know, I didn't feel a thing over there. Well, that's not where it started at, what you felt. It's what you think about. When you come to church, don't come in here hoping to feel something. Come in here to think about God. Don't come in here and, as I said, hook your spiritual jumper cables to what's going on. Because if you do that, you're going to be up and down, in and out, on and off, hot and cold. You're not going to be worth a heel of beans in the things of God. You don't come to church to feel something. You come to church to think about something. And when you think about God and you become occupied with God, you will feel something. But it starts with your thinking about God. But let me hurry on to the third thing. I done scared some of you to death. Right, number three, are you still with me? Worship what it involves. It involves a revelation of God and you thinking about what God, who God is. And when you worship, it will inspire something. It will overwhelm your heart. It will overflow in your heart. But there's a third thing about worship that I must point out, and that is what worship imposes. I'm going to tell you something this morning. You, when you worship, it's going to require something of you. You know why a lot of folks don't worship? Because they're not willing to give God what worship demands of them. Worship does something in your heart. And when it does something in your heart, it pulls you in a certain direction. It draws you into certain actions in your life. For one, you find in the Bible that there is always a physical act of adoration when you worship God. For example, you take our word worship, our English word worship. It originally came from an old English word, worth-ship. Worth-ship. In other words, when you worship, you are looking at the worthiness of God. Or thinking about the worthiness of God. But you look at the word worship in the Old Testament. And there's a word that is constantly used in the Old Testament for worship. It's a word, Hebrew word that simply means to bow down. Or to kneel down. Or to stoop. Or to prostrate. For example, you remember Abraham? He's sitting in his tent door one day in Genesis 18. And three guests came walking up the road. One of them was the Lord. And you read that he bowed down and worshipped. You read also in Genesis chapter 24, I believe it is, that when he sent out his servant to find a wife for his bride, that when he sent the servant out, the Bible said that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And when the elders of Israel, when Moses brought them the first message, or the first time they heard the message from God, that God was going to bring them out of Egyptian bondage, the Bible said, and the people believed in Exodus 4, and then they bowed their heads and worshiped. And even in Matthew, in the New Testament, when the wise men came to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what the Bible said? And when they were coming to the house, 
they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped. Now listen to me. Whenever there is real worship for God, there will always be a physical act of adoration. There will always be a physical act of adoration. We have said it in praise and in thanksgiving. That praise and thanksgiving is always vocal and praise and thanksgiving is always visible. Worship is no different. I'm going to tell you something. When you really worship God, I'm not talking about you getting a good, good feeling. I'm talking about God getting real to you. And when God gets real to you, it will move you emotionally. And when you are moved by God, it will demand of you a physical act of adoration. Somewhere you'll get on your knees before God. Somewhere you'll fall on your face before God. It may be you'll lift your hands. But whenever there is worship, there will be a physical act of adoration. And second of all, there will be a personal act of presentation. In the book of Leviticus, or rather Deuteronomy 26, 10, we'll not turn there. But you'll find that in their worship, that they were to bring a gift when they worship God. And I do not believe anything's changed when it comes to worship. That whenever a man worship God, worships God, there it will demand of him to give God a gift. I'm going to tell you something. You don't know when I've been moved, my, moved the most to be submissive to God and to do the will of God and to honor God. It's when I worshiped. And when I worshiped, that experience of just God becoming real to my heart drove me to my knees and renewed my love for Christ and renewed my desire to serve God. In fact, I have never worshipped without saying, Dear God, I want to give you my life. And I want to give you my everything. You know why many believers will never worship? Because they will never get to that place that they'll bow before God and give God everything. I read the story again this week about F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was a thriving preacher from England. I've attended the services at Melbourne Hall in Leicester on Sunday morning where F.B. Meyer pastored. It was at Victoria Road Baptist Church for a number of years. He had D.L. Moody preach for him, and, and he got run off from there for having D.L. Moody. So he went over here and started Melbourne Hall, and God did a great work, and eventually ended up in London. But F.B. Meyer was a thriving young man, but he went one time to hear a group of seven men Cambridge students. They were known as the Cambridge Seven. One of them was C.T. Studd. He'd been a cricket player. And, and over there, cricket is the sport. It's their, what they call football. Not anything like our football, but that was the sport. And, and a cricket player, they considered C.T. Studd to be one of the greatest cricket players that England ever had. But C.T. Studd had turned his back on sports and had given his life to God. And they were giving a farewell uh, thing for these seven men that were leaving to go to China with the China Inland Mission. F.B. Meyer said he went that day and it was not so much what he heard, but what he saw and what he felt. And he went up to C.T. Studd afterwards and he said, Mr. Studd, he said, there is something I see in you that I do not have. Can you tell me what it is? And C.T. Studd was a very straight